0: Welcome to TNS, the new school at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring nature, culture, and consciousness. Join us now for post keynote commentary from selected speakers at the 2019 resilience gathering hosted at Commonweal.
1: Thank you, Nate, so much. So that was a lot to take in, Uh, but I'm just, Curious, how many of you think that you just heard the truth? Yeah. And how many of you heard it in a different way significantly from how you've heard it before? Yeah. See, I really think there is a truth here that, as Nate was saying, is not widely distributed even in our community. Uh, we didn't really understand before that, guess what, the Green New Deal is not going to do it for us. You know There are a lot of us that really didn't understand the comprehensiveness of this. The other thing I would mention is <clears throat> Nate has focused improperly so on the energy story, which is the heart of what he described. But if you look at the two dozen different vectors that are stressing the Earth, there is, in addition to the centrality of the energy story, these other stories. So, you know, we need to keep that in mind. So I'm going to call on a few people uh, for comments that I want to get their voices uh, into this early on, and we're going to have this conversation for the next hour. I'd like to start with Richard Heinberg. Richard, as I've said, uh, you have made such a tremendous contribution through the Post Carbon Institute and Resilience.org. What would you add to what your good friend Nate Higgins has just said? Yeah,
2: it's hard to, hard to think about what to add uh, whenever Nate speaks because he's so comprehensive. Um, and um, I just say that uh, I'm, a couple of weeks ago, we at Post Carbon Institute had a, a small invitational gathering uh, up in the, on the East Coast where we brought together um, 15 thought leaders in um, a, a variety of areas from human ecology to uh, social justice work. And, um, and no one in the room was com- completely ignorant of, of this big picture that we've, we've just looked at, but we took a deep dive into it for three days and then looked at what, what this meant for, for each of us in, in our work and on our, our perspective on the world. And what we found was that um, very few of us, even those of us who'd been working in this sphere for maybe a couple of decades, uh, very few of us had situations where we could speak honestly. About the enormity of of the the, the shift that's that, that's ahead of us, and that it was such a relief to be in a gathering where it was okay to talk about that. That suddenly all, all sorts of new insights started flooding in. So. Um, uh, this this is another gathering of this kind. It's maybe a little shorter and so on, but uh, this is the kind of conversation that I think we need to seed, you know, throughout our lives with people who who matter to us, so that it's so that it's okay to talk about what's what really matters and what's really going on.
1: Thank you, and if you pass the mic to Joan Diamond, who is right over here and who was at your gathering. Joan is uh, the executive director of Paul Ehrlich's Millennial Alliance for Humanity and the Biosphere at Stanford. She's also the director of an extraordinary project called the FAN Initiative, uh, which we've both been involved with. Uh, And uh, uh, we've been working closely uh, with Richard and others in this sort of Bay Area uh, community of nonprofits, thinkers, philanthropy workers, and so on. Um, Joan, what would you add to what, uh, uh, to what Nate uh, has offered us?
3: Well, thank you, Michael. But that is a very difficult question mm-hmm. in terms of adding something to that very comprehensive description. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the only thing that maybe I would more amplify than add is the number of people who are ready for the story the tens of thousands, millions of people who know that something is wrong and are seeking a story, a way to connect the dots so that they can engage in an authentic and meaningful way. So I think that's really all I have to actually add and that includes Students as Nate has so much experience with and as we see in this room some senior citizens So it's not limited to one demographic. It's not limited in my experience to one country It's not a developed country versus you know emerging economy issue It is an issue that unites us in the awareness of something being wrong is shared, so it's a great opportunity
1: and if you would pass the mic to Joan Abramson from the Jefferson Institute here. Uh, Joan is a longtime colleague. I mentioned her institute as a public policy institute, but most important in, in certain respects, as she chaired, as I mentioned, the Barbara Bush Foundation for Family Literacy, and she worked closely with Vice President Mondale and George H.W. Bush, uh, and then uh, as the latter's assistant chief of staff. So Joan has an unusual capacity to, w- to work across the aisle. And that's extremely important for this work because uh, part of our goal is to present these issues across the global political spectrum. That starts with the American political spectrum. And Joan, what reflections do you have on what you've heard and have been thinking about? I'm
4: deep in thought at the moment because I really do believe that everything that that Nate presented is true. And I have heard it before, And this time I've really heard it even more deeply. And I think that um, his conclusions are surprisingly on point. Mm-hmm. That narrative is really essential. I mean, one of the first thing I'm thinking is I'm gonna go back to LA and I'm gonna approach Brian Grazer who did Cocoon and all that stuff, you know, and I'm gonna see if he can do a movie about this. i like Nate to meet with him. Uh, I mean.
5: Could I- Sure. When finish, I respond
4: oh, okay. But I mean, I, but I like that, and I'm going to talk to Disney about an animated movie because I think we need to reach the young about this kind of dynamic and the visualization of it, not in a dumbed-down way, but more and more, you know, people are relying on these simplistic kind of um, uh, stories, and they're internalizing them and reading them to their dogs. And it's like, it's no, it really is important that we plant the seeds of the right narrative right
5: now. So I was in L.A. yesterday yeah. for exactly that reason. Ah. Um, I think there's the scientific truth about our story, and then there's what Nate and Michael understand about our story, which is never the scientific truth. We're, we're going in that direction, right? We can't know everything. And then once we have this story, the story I just presented to you, There's dozens of ways to interpret that to different audiences, to young people, to mayors, to politicians, but one of the things that needs to happen, and this is why I was in Hollywood, is I'm trying to get a workshop there the same way that I've done with uh, political leaders on credit uh, collapse risk, to get Hollywood to understand that this story goes beyond climate change and renewables. It's a much bigger story, and Hollywood has a critical role to play that we're not going to terraform Mars or have zombies in our neighborhood. We need positive, specific, creative examples that people go say, oh, yeah, we could get all the parents of my students and fix that school instead of waiting yeah. for handouts and take pride in that. And, I mean, I don't even know what they are, but so that's one well, thing. Well, I'd I I like,
4: like to help you with that, and I, I think that what we need is a big map of that. I mean, there are so many, you know, like a, a visual representation of all these different communities that need to be reached, who already understands, who can introduce us to those communities, who we haven't reached, we've forgotten, but who's the best storyteller in that community. There's, there's, there's a way to organize it, so that all of them will be different approaches, but they'll all be important. Yeah.
1: I mean, Joan, memorably, at one of the gatherings that uh, uh, we do at Joan Diamond's house on this on a regular basis, uh, she said, uh, you know, we should, uh, we should present this to Condoleezza Rice, who you are in contact sure. with. So it's that capacity to reach across the spectrum. And I think what is the, the core here is to recognize that as soon as we start telling people what to think and what to do, we fractionate. Right. But as, as long as we say, as you were just saying, Nate, that, you know, there's the science, and then there's how it looks to us, but no matter what, we're we're converging on a science-based story right. that is but, true. But
4: I think it's a bigger type of science than yes. we've been talking about. And I think that that's kind of critical to this. For instance, the two people who came into my mind the most during your talk are Buckminster Fuller and his whole idea of the world game, <laughs> And what the new world game can be that we're constructing, because I really do believe that that's what this is. And then, and, that, and I've connected into that world as well for many, many years, and I'm sure you are. And the other one is uh, Jonas Salk, who developed the polio vaccine, who um, in his lifetime, what was more important to him was he believed, he wrote a lot at night. He'd wake up in the middle of the night, and he'd... He'd write in the dark, and the next day he'd give it to his secretary and say, type this up, you know, and then he'd come back and he'd study it. And he developed this idea of meta-biology. And this is before anyone was talking meta-anything. And that he believes the principles that develop trees and develop humans and develop all biology are the principles that really do direct how life can succeed. You know, how we live or how we die. And that rather than having it be in the domain of scientists that it's the kind of thing that can leapfrog over religion and over the kind of small thinking people do because you go outside and you see your favorite tree and you look at that tree and you are going to understand how things move, not just how the, the light is received on the leaves but also how how we're all connected, how you can solve a problem. How does nature solve the problem? Jonas used to say with the polio thing, what would a virus do? How does the virus think? And how does nature think? And I think we're starting to realize that we're just like part of nature. And we've got like this kind of ability to communicate in this mind and this, this community. And now is the moment for us to come together, what he would call from Epic A, to Epic B. Mm-hmm. And he has a, I, I can't wait to, I, I really want to um, make accessible his kind of thinking because I think it will be useful as we move
1: forward. And we need these gatherings in Los Angeles and in different places around the world. Since you're sitting right next to Brian Tucker, who you brought with you, and Brian, if you would stand, I mentioned you're the founder of Geohazards International. If you could say a word about your work, but particularly, uh, you've got a big chunk of the different vectors that we're talking about, which is the geohazard vector. Mm-hmm. And you have a way of moving into communities before the crisis hits and ameliorating it. Could you talk a little about what you do?
6: Yeah, I, uh, I, I didn't come prepared <laughs> to uh, speak on this, so I hope I can say something that is relevant and, and contributes a little bit to your thinking. Um, I was trained as a Ph.D. in seismology. I, I thought back in the 60s that this was the most re- socially relevant science that I could do. Um, I switched from oceanography to seismology, thinking that I could help society in this way. And I went to, through some luck, w- w- Central Asia in, during the Soviet Union times. And I was studying some minute Uh, seismological problem and I saw out of the window as I was living there for several years that the people around me in the mountains of Tajikistan were building their homes in exactly the same way that they were building uh, for hundreds of years and yet just a few decades before they had all experienced a large earthquake which killed 20,000 people. And I wasn't there to study what motivates people why they stick their head in the sand and much less how to grab their head out of the sand but it 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 was so troubling to me i as a newly freshly minted scientist thinking that science was going to c- cure the problems i i it just festered and i have spent the last 28 years creating this nonprofit, which works in developing countries to try to prepare communities for natural hazards, and it's it's like it's a minuscule part of the problem that we just heard, but it is um, trying to have people ad- recognize remote temporarily hazards that are not in their um, in their present life, especially in developing countries, they're worried about war or um, uh, just putting food on their table. And yet I felt I had to devise some method to make them aware of their problem and motivate them to, uh, to make a difference. And just for Um, I don't know whether my experience, I think we've had some success in preparing communities for natural hazards, and I hope to expand that to climate change driven hazards. But what we found anyway, and I I don't know how this can be applied more widely, is if I tell people that their um, children are at risk, and that I can tell them something that they can do to protect their children, that is what works. If I tell them that their temple is gonna fall down or that their government structure is gonna fall down or even that their home um, will fall down, it doesn't really, ha- I, I wasn't able to connect. But if I told them that their the school that their children were in would fall down and would would they like to have help strengthening this school, I, that was my portal. That was
1: the place where you got in.
6: That was my portal. Thank you very much. Yeah. Uh, so where I, is Brittany
1: Ganguly here? Brittany, could you take the mic next? Uh, Brittany is, uh, works closely with Joan Diamond, and she's the director of the Millennial Alliance for Humanity in the Biosphere. And she's, we need, obviously, younger visionary voices in this. And uh, your generation is actually enormously engaged in these kinds of issues. So, uh, since you've been thinking a lot about this, what, what reflections would you offer?
7: Thank you. Um, Well, on that note, I think I would say to empower and also give power to younger generations. Um, Not only are we the ones who are gonna have to be working on these issues for a lot longer um, (laughs) than most of you in the room, but we also, I think, come at it from a different perspective where maybe it's at our advantage that we don't have some of the historical knowledge and behaviors that are deeply set and we want to change and we see the need to, and we're very adaptable. I don't see my ways as set. I see my ways as that's how I was raised and now it's time for something else. Um, so that, and then I would also just, uh, as Nate concluded that the most important asset you have is your your brain and your health. Um, don't take that for granted and and really be in tune with who you are as, an individual and both a player in this space first um, because without understanding yourself and I think your mental health we can't make leaps and bounds um, and then I think taking risks daily uh, that can be from bring this conversation up uh, with your co-workers I in my day job <laughs> work for San Mateo County in the behavioral health department and I struggle sometimes to talk about this with my colleagues because we're so focused on the day-to-day, but I find it important to bring up. Um, And I do try, so take risk. And then I want to make a plug for uh, a movie that I think a lot of you would enjoy that relates to this that Nate was featured in called Living in the Future's Past. Um, So check it out, you'll enjoy.
1: I'd like you to pass the mic to Charlie Halperin here. Uh, Charlie, uh, for a decade, ran the Nathan Cummings Foundation, which I would argue was one of the most creative, large, mid-sized family foundations in the country. He played a key role in bringing contemplative practice into much wider uh, use. He founded the first public interest law firm in the country, longtime friend and colleague, and has been reflecting with us. Charlie, what are your thoughts? Uh,
8: thank you, Michael. Uh,
1: <clears throat> I,
8: I've been coming to meetings that you've invited me to that gave me a much larger perspective and, and, and the kind of vision that, that Nate spelled out so systematically and effectively this morning. Um, I still keep, the, I keep coming back to the uh, environmental issue, the cluster of things about global climate disruption and the disruptive impact of our agricultural practices, of our commitment to fracking and things of that kind. And I think that, uh, that there's some virtue at this point in bringing that forward. The political moment feels right. There are really a lot of people of, of all generations um, who are drawn to that. And I think <clears throat> an interesting challenge seems to me to hold this large perspective and then pick strategically Uh, What issues seem to be, at the moment, uh, uh, things that would be interesting and exciting to people. I also uh, feel that um, there's a kind of mid-level activity that individuals and groups can engage in, which is not just about the place where they are, but also the network of connections and associations they have, by virtue of the college they went to, or the community in which they grew up, which may be different from the one they live in now, and that we think, you know, my college happens to be uh, 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 very successful in most measures, but it is built in a floodplain. And if we're going to, if we're going to see significant uh, sea level rise, that campus will be underwater. Now, to get each university to look across all of its activities from, from the safety of their uh, physical plant to just what they want to educate their graduates for, to really try to get these institutions, which have diverse stakes, to work at them, I'm, uh, <clears throat> for curious reasons, uh, a member of the National Academy of Health, and the National Academy of Health is is designed to advise government and institutions in the United States and globally about the most acute challenges they face. We are facing the most acute challenge for health in, in, in this whole uh, suite of issues, but particularly around uh, environmental things. And they are doing nothing about it. They're not treating it with urgency. You know, they have a they have a couple of programs here or there, but it's startling. We're supposed to have an annual meeting uh, 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 six months from now, and there's not one mention of climate issues and climate disruption. So. To me, that's an occasion, an opportunity I have because of this odd uh, association to this institution and try to get them to help bring this issue forward for a uh, a
1: large audience they could influence. Thank you, Charlie. Could you pass the mic to Joan Evans? Joan, can you, where are you? There you are. So Joan Evans, uh, distinguished uh, Zen teacher in everyday Zen, uh, has worked in philanthropy in a variety of roles for many years, but now, critically and relevant to this, uh, through the uh, Tamil Pious Trust, has been working with indigenous peoples around the world, protecting sacred lands, and uh, so you bring a deep immersion in uh, what original peoples are experiencing as well as many other things. Your reflections would be wonderful.
9: Michael. You're wonderful. We love you, Diana Cohn and I want to just say we're not philanthropists. We work for people who are philanthropists. And we're lucky. We're very lucky. No, <laughs> it is not. It is not. Not at all. Um, I, I I guess the, um, the the gifts that come from indigenous people um, are gifts that many of us already know uh, that. Um, we have um, uh, learned, perhaps, as caregiving and caretaking ways on the earth. Um, And as some of you may know, they are disproportionately affected by um, a lot of uh, what the change in climate, uh, their their communities in Pacific and also in the Arctic are are sinking. Um, They are told that they have to move. And, and I'm really interested, Brian, in talking to you a little later, um, because they don't have resources to do that, and there's no plan to do it, and it, and it takes away from the social um, uh, coherence uh, of their communities. But their strong spiritual relationship to um, their uh, land and all of their relationships is something that I think we could all learn more from, um not to romanticize their situation or who they are at all they they ask us uh, repeatedly, please don't do that. Uh, we We really have to be seen as peers and also to be um, part of the dialogue. Um, they uh, they have wonderful um, answers to some of the difficulties uh, and they also just share in a lot of the suffering and have spiritual kinds of um, ceremony that uh, if you Uh, have that sort of uh, imagination, uh, which I feel is like a critical factor uh, for all of us to understand that imagination uh, is an energy and a force uh, available to all of us, uh, and one that, um, when mixed with reflection and the ability to um, take some quiet time, uh, can generate huge uh, insight uh, and... uh, and love between people. So I'm here with a colleague, Alan Solch, who also has a long history in uh, working with indigenous people and also um, a kind of um, a cultural, spiritual way of um, being in the world. And I invite you to ask either of us anything during the day. Thank you.
1: ALAN would you like to say anything? I'd love to ask, excuse, thank you. Ted Shetler is right here. Ted, uh, as I mentioned, is, played a key role in the, uh, advancing the ecological paradigm of health, which a number of you have mentioned. But, Ted, in our many morning walks together, uh, you've come to the conclusion that uh, sustainable agriculture is a really cre- key intervention point. Uh, everybody needs to eat. And the modern industrial agricultural system is, has incredibly fragile supply chains and everything else. So could you say a little bit about uh, how you see a hopeful movement in uh, regenerative agriculture taking place?
10: Well, uh, my work is sort of the intersection of medicine, public health, and environmental health. And so I see the human health impacts of the current industrial agricultural model filling up our hospitals with people who are sick. in, in direct relationship to the food that's being supplied uh, and the way that the industrial model is being destructive, uh, which Charlie mentioned briefly a moment ago, destructive of many environmental attributes, and that there are ways to redesign agriculture, with whether it's a regenerative system or variations on it, that accomplish, that address both issues, provide healthier food, uh, and, and ways uh, that's more equitably distributed, and also that uh, ha- has a not only less adverse impact uh, on environmental attributes, but actually can be part of the solution as well, getting carbon back in the soil and, and, and better use of water resources and so on. But I, I have to say that um, I was struck in Nate's talk by your metaphor of the metabolism. And you said that that the environmental things that we're seeing are just representative of the metabolism of the economy, and then you had a slide at the end where you actually had mitochondria, uh, with the energy, and and I uh, I've recently been working on this concept of the exposome, which has made its way into public and environmental health uh, as an acknowledgement that rather than looking at individual exposures that we've, we do so well in medicine and epidemiology and so on, the impact of lead or the impact of mercury or the impact of this pesticide or whatever, to recognize that we're all exposed uh, to a global collection of all kinds of stressors, in many ways similar to what you described at the outset, Michael, uh, and we need to look at the impact of that. That's called the exposome and its impact on us internally and think about it in that collective way. And Joan, you, you suggested that we needed a map. And that's exactly what's going on in the world of the exposome uh, analysis and research now is to set up what they call ontologies, which sort of map this out in a systematic way. And I think those kinds of maps could be put together for this purpose, to make them available to communities of people who are actually sort of persuaded by looking at those kinds of taxonomies and maps and think about how it can move into their work. So I actually think there's an opportunity. It would include agriculture and and different models of agriculture, but it would be mapped along with the other things that we're seeing. And how do we influence this metabolism that you described? So what's turning out
0: at the other end? You're listening to a TNS presentation of post-keynote commentary at the 2019 Resilience Gathering at Commonweal.
10: Is a healthier metabolism and healthier byproducts rather than what we're seeing now. So I think there are a lot
1: of opportunities here to put this into a framework. Ted, I'd like to ask you to address one other thing, just as one other uh, key vector. Uh, I'd like you to address the scientific literature on the decline in sperm counts and what the evidence is that continuing exposure for people with low sperm counts, generation after generation, or animals, uh, indicates about the uh, projection of, of, of human fertility.
0: Yeah,
10: since the, since the early 1990s, there have been studies published from around the world that have shown a, a decline uh, in male sperm counts. Uh, And sperm quality and it's not been the same all over the world, but uh, more in some countries than in others Uh, And then when you put those studies together in a sort of a meta-analysis you see this confirmed and the data continue to grow stronger and uh, uh, the the general thought has been that it's it's a result of probably many different exposures, but there are endocrine disrupting chemicals and other chemicals that we've introduced in the world. You mentioned phthalates. Uh, There are pesticides. Uh, There are a whole lot of chemicals that are in consumer products and so forth that are part of our metabolism. They're part of our exposome and uh, uh, associated with declines in sperm counts Uh, and probably other things contributing to it as well. Uh, And so, you know, many people around the world now are at Sperm counts that are really marginal for being able to reproduce. That's one of the arguments I often hear: is that nature will intervene here, and uh, uh, there will be there will be a reduction in uh, you know in human numbers. Uh, how that will happen, of course, remains to be seen. But uh,
1: that uh, it can't go on forever, and this may be one response to it. I mean, one reality that many of us are aware of: if you talk to the people that you know about what's going on with their children, how many families with several children, at least one child, has a learning disability, a behavioral disorder, is bipolar or depressive, has suicidal ideation, uh, you know, has you know, gender confusion, and all of these things are uh, are linked uh, in the science to endocrine disruption, and so. Um, So this is happening in very personal ways but these linkages between all these different things are almost non-existent. We don't hear the different pieces of this at all. I want to just open this up now. I've called on a half dozen to a dozen people that I just wanted to bring their voices into the room and I'll do that more this afternoon. I'd love to hear any other brief thoughts and reflections that people have. Questions, thoughts, reflections. Yes, John Esterling, Whitman Institute.
11: Um, Since I work at a foundation, I'm gonna probably direct my uh, comments a little more to when you had your slide about what can philanthropic institutions do. And I was glad you put spend down. Um, We are a spend down foundation ourselves, so we're kind of thinking about how to talk about that issue more within philanthropy. Um and then Michael, I was thinking of your opening comments just about the resilience project here at mm-hmm. Commonweal and wanting to uh influence the field of philanthropy. And um so part of it was like what's the in- what's the invitation mm-hmm. to um foundations or philanthropists and, and, and it kind of the positive inf- invitation of what they can do and hearing some of these comments in your talk, one is the narrative piece, uh, and the cultural piece is really important. Um, So how to talk about that, or invite some opportunities around that. Um, Richard, when you talked about when the uh, meeting you just had, and kind of the depth of a dialogue that enabled people to to go deeply into how we're processing this. I think that's something to pay attention to. So what might philanthropy's role be in supporting the spaces and the time to have the conversations that people need to build the relationships and the connections that will move us in that direction? So that's another Thing to think about, and then maybe thirdly, this mapping idea: um, where are uh, where are things bubbling up, where people are moving in this direction, and how might again uh, resources be provided to? Um, Have them move organically to be talking with the people they want to be talking to. And so I was thinking of uh, Jean's, your your comment about, you know, we have to have some new conversations. So how do we bring, quote, experts and uh, grassroots experience together as legitimate partners in exploring opportunities? And then I would just uh, finally add, like, Brittany's comments about power Mm -hmm. and giving up power. I think we have to talk about that more and, 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 and also raise up, if we want to go in the directions you're outlining, to be explicit, we're talking about many of us giving up power. And that's, uh, just even sometimes at the institute and how we've talked about our own work, that's unsettling for people a lot of times. Oh no, you mean sharing power, right? No, no. No, it's giving up power. And and so I think we have to also have inviting ways to bring that into the discussion um, as well. Um, and then oops, one final uh, um, Charles uh, comment about um, what are the issues that bring us in right now that maybe can be leading ones? And you referenced it at the beginning: um, climate and justice. So I'm thinking of you know the folks who are talking about the Just Transition Framework and things like that, how to bring that energy around that into this conversation as well.
12: Yes.
1: Thank you, John. Could you? Yeah, okay.
12: yeah. Christina Conklin. Um, I am currently writing a book on uh, climate change in the ocean and this is really a request. Um, so I'm looking at all aspects of climate change in the ocean Um, from storms and sea level rise, which lots of people know about, to ocean warming and changing chemistry, which not as many people know about. And I'm doing it through a metaphor of ocean as body, and finding these correlations between human health and environmental health. So I guess uh, one request is that if anybody has um, deeper, you know, further thoughts on this, the metabolism metaphor, the circulation metaphor, the systems theory and how it ties together ocean and human bodies and and builds that sense of empathy and relationship. Um, That's what I'm working at uh, philosophically. And then I'm also introducing a term, um, there's a term in geology and it's transilience. So instead of resilience, which uh, implies a going back um, uh, to something, um, bouncing back. um, Transilience actually is about the layers of rock in sedimentary forms where they jump. They jump to a new layer. And so um, in my book, I'm going to be talking about transilience and how this moment is a moment where we're jumping forward or can can become that. Um, so again, that's another term. If 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 anybody has a thought or a conversation or something they'd like to have about that, um, please please find me. Christina Conklin. You could we get your name? Christina Conklin? Thompson? Conklin, C-O-N-K-L-I-N. Thank you. I'd like to ask Orrin
1: Slasberg to say a word. And By way of introduction, our executive director, we are fully aware of how white this room is. And uh, that is a fact of West Marin demography. Uh, It's a fact of who responded to our widely extended invitation. Uh, We certainly uh, invited a number of uh, 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 leaders of justice Uh, and uh, uh, communities of color uh, to come. We are thrilled beyond words that despite the shutdown of LA airport, that Angela Oh, who is a board member of Commonweal, managed to get up here, and we'll hear from her this afternoon about the extraordinary work that she and others are doing, uh, particularly uh, near the border in in, uh, California. Um, Judy Hatcher, also on our board, um, a nationally recognized justice uh, person, um, hoped to be here this morning and wasn't able to be. Uh, We are very committed to having these conversations uh, in Oakland, in uh, different areas where there will be a natural ability to have a far more diverse audience. But we just want to honor this truth of how partial Uh, this is, and Oren leads our uh, work in uh, diversity of all kinds, which is really spreading through the Commonwealth community. I just wanted to ask you to uh, offer any reflections you have. Um, There's a lot lot of thoughts that are going through my
13: mind, Um, but I found it interesting that at the end of Nate's talk, the things that you talked about were community, kindness, empathy, critical thinking, innovation. And it reminded me so much of conversations that I used to have when I used to work in public schools. Like, what are the things that we're looking out of? And I spent 10 years working with fine art museums and schools about how do we create this kind of transformation of how we make meaning out of the world. Because this kind of wicked problem, the idea that there's a problem to which there is no specific solution is hard for our cognition to process. So what is it that we need to do to rewire our minds, so to speak, to make meaning out of this so then we can act on it? And those are some of the questions that, that kind of percolated through the work with fine art museums as well as our work now at Commonweal. How do we create spaces where we can reflect on these so that we can then make decisions for ourselves because the information is not lacking. And a lot of the, the young people that come to Commonweal from a lot of diverse communities the issue is not the lack of information. The issue is that they don't know. I mean, the issue is not that they don't know, is that what do you do with that? What is the new story, the new narrative, the great turning, these things that we talk about, how do we shift the conversation in a way that will make meaning for us? And my son is graduating from high school tomorrow and our conversation last night, we were talking about the future and he said, oh, and by the way, I decided not to have kids. It's like, well, why not? I said, well, the, the world's gonna blow up in 20 years, so what's the point? So it's interesting about how he makes meaning out of the world and what is it that we can do to contribute to maybe a different meaning-making strategy.
1: Thank you. Uh, and uh, I'd like to ask you to pass the mic to Melinda Stone here. And before you do, I call on Melinda, you mentioned this key concept of wicked problems. And actually the concept of the wicked problem was uh, first brought into broad discourse by West uh, Churchman was a Bolinas resident. He was the father of Josh Churchman, the well-known fisherman in Bolinas. But he was the one who introduced into social science the concept of the wicked problem where it's absolutely unclear if there is an answer. And whatever answers or things you might try to do, it might make some other element of the problem worse. And so I think it's very important to see the global problematique or the human dilemma as a wicked problem. Uh, That doesn't mean that there aren't certain things, which Nate did a brilliant job of pointing to, that we can do, and many other good ideas, but recognizing that this is a wicked problem, I think. So, Melinda, uh, among many other things, you have made a a real focus on intergenerational dialogue in Westmoreland and in your work teaching. Uh, And so you're very sort of connected to this interface between the generation that's going to be facing all of this, and those of us who are are older and concerned. So I'd love to hear your reflections on what you've heard.
14: Thanks for coming. Um, I'm really struck by the 1,800 horses that it took you to get here. Is that correct? Uh,
5: to get here, it was 100,000 horses. 100,000. Four hours from Minneapolis. Okay. Yeah. Yeah.
14: That's one thing I think a lot about um, is... I love that you're here and I love that all of you are here, um, even the ones who traveled far to get here. How do we create these things without that? Um, So that's one thing I think about. It's not a critique of you personally or this gathering at all. I think these are really important, but it weighs on me heavily and it has for a really long time and being in an academic where we are actually judged by how many panels we attend or conferences we go to, and I haven't done that for 10 years, and I'm fortunate because I have tenure, and I've just decided, like, screw it. I'm not gonna play that game anymore. I don't wanna fly, and so I have dug really deep here in West Marin, and um, bringing my students from San Francisco out to this community that I find to be kind of just the right size, manageable, almost like a small ecology um, and also really connected to the natural environment in which we live. And more recently, working with elders in the community, uh, I went up to Mount Tam and had Mount Tam not just speak to me but to my students. And the, the mountain spoke to me and it just said one word and that was transceiver. And I didn't know what that was. I mean, I knew what it was in radio, but I didn't know what it meant for me. And I think now listening here today and understanding more and more that there are these, I'm not an elder. I'm not a younger either. I do believe that there are those of us who will play that role and it's linking you guys. Um, I see some young folks in the back in the community. I'm really happy to have you guys here. Um, And again, this this power I think that we need to open up and how is it that we open up? Um, our community out here, some of my favorite people, we're get, you're getting older and so how do we transfer that amazing knowledge you have of this space and, and that just all the cultural uh, knowledge that you have, how do we transfer that? And I think that goes everywhere, like seeing your slides back where you live, um, they look very similar, like the cultural gatherings. And I think too about The health, um, one of the things I've learned um, in residence at Commonweal Garden, um, listening to James and Anna, um, uh, I think it was Anna who said that isolation, our isolation that we have so prevalent in our society right now is worse than smoking a pack of cigarettes a day. Mm -hmm. And so thinking about that related to you know, the things that I work on, I work with food, that's how I create community and teach my students how to create community. But that's that the health of eating together and sort of how we digest better and how we're just happier when we are together. Uh, that those things, that we do that more, we're creating a lot of the solutions just by Coming together. So, how do we do that in a world where I think younger and younger working with the the kids in Bolinas, they are getting more and more isolated? And then again, a small microcosm of what's happening everywhere. So, lots more questions and other things, but um, those were the things that came up.
1: Could you pass the mic to the young filmmaker? Forgive me, I've forgotten your name. And introduce yourself and talk about the film because you'd like to talk to some of the speakers later. Is that correct? Would, yeah. Yeah, yeah, Say a little about yourself, the film, and yeah. w- what you'd like to talk to people about.
15: Yeah. Thanks, Michael. Yeah, My name is Andrew Hasse. I'm a filmmaker. I'm based in Berkeley. Uh, I made a film called Edible City uh, that came out in 2015. It's about localizing food systems in the Bay Area. And I'm now working on a film called Adaptations, which is about um, resilience movements and psychological adaptation to climate change. Um, it was actually inspired by... Uh, Richard Heinberg's talk uh, here at the Commonwealth Gathering, whenever that was, a few months ago. Yeah. Um, and that was a real impetus. And also Joanna Macy's work, um, who I'd like, love to talk to. And a, lo- a lot of the folks uh, in this room who I've just been inspired by. So um, I'm just starting that project now, uh, along with my partner, Sarah Scheld, who used to work at the gar- uh, live at the garden here at Commonwealth. <clears throat> um, and she's involved in uh, psychedelic healing work. Um, with maps. So that's another piece of the the puzzle that I think is really interesting. Um, I was just at the Oakland City Council meeting the other night where they decriminalized nature. I don't know how many people are familiar with this movement, but uh, all psychedelic plants are now decriminalized in Oakland. Um, And that sounds unrelated, but I think in fact, um, from what I've learned from the work that Sarah's been doing with maps, this is actually a key component of the paradigm shift that we're gonna need to have happen because w- what I see is, is we're, we're in a crisis of consciousness right now. We, we, we need to get out of the old story and into a new one. And there's a lot of practical things we need to do that but really we need to shift some people's minds. People here I think have had their minds shifted and probably have taken some psychedelics is my guess. Um, but anyways, I don't wanna focus too much on that but I thought that was an interesting thing that's very occurring right now which is that you know these plant, plant allies are a way of developing a different kind of relationship with, with the, the earth, which is what we need right now. Um, so anyways, I, I could go on. Oh, the other thing I wanted to mention, uh, I, I imagine some people are familiar with the Deep Adaptations paper. Mm-hmm. Is it, who, who, How many people have heard of this? Yeah. Um, this is something to look into. It's a movement coming out of uh, England, uh, a professor named Jem Bendell, I believe. Um, and he wrote a, a paper called Deep Adaptations, and it's um, essentially kind of uh, all the latest... And and most shocking and depressing science from 2018, all condensed. um, And then sort of a reflection on on what we do with that information, which I think is a similar conversation to what we're having here. Um, So that was sort of another inspiration for the work that I'm going to be doing with this adaptations film. It's just when we accept what's going on in the world uh, and and do that grieving and and get over that shock... where does that leave us and how can we find a different path from that point forward? Um, So in terms of the narratives that we're telling, the stories that we're we're telling, I think it's important to acknowledge how difficult a a situation this is and how dark the possibility is in order to not be in a state of repression um, and and to think and act clearly from an honest place. Thank Again, you. this is where the psychedelics can help. You observe. have yeah, two younger
1: you. colleagues yeah. in the back of the room. Would either of you be willing to offer any thoughts? Um, the two of you. Yeah? any thoughts? No. Back here. Oh, wonderful! Just trying to get some different voices.
16: Yeah. Right? So I'm Amber. Um, I'm just someone who's really alive and awake and loves coming to um, gatherings like this. And you know, just hearing everyone's voices and hearing all the new ideas and the unique ways in which we fit in this world, I'm just wondering how journalism and our news fits into this. And we live in a world where lots of us don't trust the news, rightfully so. And lots of us, especially my age, have just tuned out. Like, I don't even want to read the news. I don't want to stay informed. <coughs> And a lot of that is because journalism is in a huge crisis right now. Um, local news coverage is declining. You know, fake news, all of that, social media, and it's all bearing down on us right now. So all of that and the negative news overload is creating to this cycle of disengagement. So my partner and I, can we really work with this. And we think that journalism plays a huge part into this. There is an amazing movement in the South called movement journalism, where they they know that we need to prioritize stories about people building this collective power. So it's not just about talking about what's going wrong; it's talking about like stories that are about solutions. That places like Detroit and San Diego um, and Michigan are creating their own internet to fight against net neutrality. Um, you know, like why isn't regenerative agriculture being Um, covered in mainstream media these are all big questions and I think the journalism has the power to really reach many people so we need solutions and we also need journalism and media that helps us engage with each other so how do we foreground stories about expanding commonplaces because that can actually help the gentrification issue you know using the power of the arts to help us storytelling all of this so um I love this man named John A. Powell. He's the um, director of the Haas Institute for a Fair and Inclusive Society in Berkeley. He says that a crisis happens when the old world is dying and the new new one hasn't been born yet. And I think that journalism can really help create this new world. So last thing... You know, the conventional questions of journalism is who, what, where, when, why. And we challenge that the next question should be what's possible now. Mm, And clearly, there's lots of people in this world, in this room, that are doing great things. They just need to be foregrounded. So, anyways, those are my thoughts.
1: Thank you so much. So important. Uh, My wife, Cheryl Patton, is going to have to leave, uh, uh, and I want to hear her voice as uh, director of the Commonwealth Biomonitoring Resource Center and very much at the heart of our work on this uh, global problematique. Charles, any
17: reflections? I'm just so glad you said what you said about the good news stories not really being heard in the, in the contemporary press. And I just wanted to talk about an, an, an international network that I work with that's focused on toxic chemical regulation at the global level. And when you talk about silos, that people and groups orient themselves into. I think that's actually a, a, funder of a, a perspective of funder because funders want to look at something that's going to move the needle and will tend to focus in on a one topic. But if you look at what groups are doing on the ground around the world, and I just call up a couple names here, Amani Calonzo in the Philippines. He's been very active in the, in the treaties, the UN treaties, that are stopping uh, the, the sending of toxic waste and so-called recyclable stuff to the Philippines and Malaysia and Singapore and all of that. That has stopped. That's now illegal to do, except the U.S. is not a signatory. But he's also working on land reform in the Philippines. He's also working on pesticides. He's also working on education. He's also working with his colleagues on women's rights. And I think if you look at Tedesi in Ethiopia, he's working on pesticides. He's also working on land reform. The education in the schools. So these there's these nodules of activity, and any group. These are groups I'm mentioning that are involved in this network that I'm involved in, called the International Pollution and Elimination Network. That these these nodules of really positive activity of groups that are in con- connection with each other, doing very strong and positive work on the ground. And those stories don't always get out, but they are very definitely there. And they're dealing with real issues uh, that are legacy issues, but they're also dealing with what we ta- think about as accommodation. As we know, as you mentioned, Michael, that there are generations of kids now that are born that think differently than children were born 40 years ago because of many factors, but primarily, I think, of the neurotoxicants that are uh, uh, changing the way children think. And so part of the accommodation now is not just. Taking on the problems and trying to find new solutions to them that are going to work, but also taking on the problem of the fact that how do you have a participatory democracy when people are are uh, uh, thinking slightly differently than possibly they did earlier, uh, more anxious. More unable to control impulses. A uh, good example of that is we know, for example, that Trump's hair dye is directly related; has chemicals in it that that inhibit in impulse control. And it's, <laughs> someday I'd like to do a Ph.D. thesis on how the the president's hair dye has affected foreign policy. But I mean, I'm just a joke on that. And, and then we go to Reagan it's <laughs> exactly that <laughs> but, but you know we have to think about how do we accommodate open up our arms as communities to to uh, the, the fact that a lot of kids are exposed to chloropyrifos or dioxin. the science there is solid and we cannot get government to agree to that so we have to recognize someplace in this conversation that there is an enemy out there we talk about it in terms of oil companies destroying how democracy works we have to take that on somehow when we talk about what we're going to do in the future we can tell the story uh, uh, people talk about speaking truth to power we need to remember that power knows the truth lots of times it just doesn't care so um, I just want to bring that up because Thank I'm you. one of these people here at Commonweal that deal with very concrete solutions and let's really get it done So I
1: want to honor the fact that we're going to stop in seven minutes for lunch and we will reconvene promptly at 1.30
0: You've been listening to a TNS presentation of post-keynote commentary at the 2019 Resilience Gathering at Commonweal. Thank you for listening to TNS, the new school at Commonweal. The new school at Commonweal is directed by Michael Lerner. Our program coordinator is Kara Epstein. Our audio producer is Ken Adams. And our theme music is by Suzanne Ciani. Visit us online at tns.commonweal.org. That's tns.commonweal.org. Wheel is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. You can also find us on SoundCloud, iTunes, Facebook, YouTube, and Vimeo. Thanks for listening.